All right, so we've come now to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17 would, in many ways, is climax, uh, the centerpiece of the whole story of Abraham. We can't go into much detail, but the promises up to this point have their widest expression in so many ways in this passage. And their promises for the first time spoken about Sarah. Now, not to Sarah, like to Hagar, as we saw last week, but about Sarah um, and the institution of circumcision in this passage. So it, it hardly gets bigger than this in the Old Testament, Genesis 17. First book of the Bible, page 11. <clears throat> When Abraham, when Abram was 99 years old, this is 13 years past the time of uh, Hagar and the birth of Ishmael, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born to your house or brought are bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he and who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his force again shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. 
I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard your I've heard you. Behold, I've blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house Or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house Those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. That's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. O Lord, bless us as we seek to understand uh, the rich promises that you give to Abraham. And Lord, how those promises uh, come to us in Christ Jesus and shape uh, every day of our lives. Oh, Lord, open up our eyes, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I've told uh, the whole congregation, I think, at one point some years ago this story, but a lot of you uh, are new, and hopefully it won't be bad to remind you of it. So years ago, when our children were about, uh, say, 12, 10, and 8, or maybe it was 11, 9, and 7, Chase had a friend over for two days, which was the first time any of our children had had somebody over for that long. And John Darwin, being four years younger than Chase, was, let's say, exceedingly jealous beyond all comprehension, okay, <clears throat> that Chase had somebody over for, for these, this long a period. Well, the last day Chase's friend was there, John Darwin had had somebody over that afternoon, Anna Kate had had somebody over that afternoon. By the end of the afternoon, everybody was gone. We were sitting down to dinner. So I said, John Darwin, would you like to pray? Yeah, I'll pray. God, I thank you that I got to have Sam over today. And I thank you that Anna Kate got to have Lily over. And I thank you that Chase got to have... John over for two all days. (laughs) I just love the honesty of that, you know. Would I, I need to be that honest. Well, you may think, okay, what does that have to do with circumcision? Um, You said the word enough, come on. Well, it, it makes me think of the sheer honesty and the emotion of Abram falling on his face in laughter, you know, like you got to be kidding, just astonished and wanting to offer God, like being helpful to God, you know, like, yeah, yeah, I, I understand. Yeah, yeah, me and Sarah, right, right. But we've got somebody, let's go with that. That's the only real possibility we have here, God, right? That's the sense here. Let's go with something we know. Let's go with something that really could happen. You're, it's, it's almost like he's telling 
God, this pipe dream of yours is just a waste of time. You know, got to get on with it. But the sheer reaction uh, to God falling down on his face in, in laughter and astonishment at God's plan. But here's the interesting thing, and this takes us to our title. When God promises us to be to do good many times in reality, we just fall on our face and laugh. We just can't believe it. We can't believe how good he wants to be to us. We can't believe how rich forgiveness is. We can't believe that he really is with us and favors us, that he justifies the ungodly, that I can come to him in all of my sin and set it before him, and he will forgive me in Christ, that I don't have to fix myself to begin to have fellowship with God. We just laugh at that. And many, many people, of course, reject it altogether. They laugh at the goodness of God. They laugh at the promise of God. But in this passage, as the centerpiece of the life of Abram, of Abraham, uh, promise is uh, rich from beginning to end. In fact, the obligation to circumcise is planted in the middle of two sections of promise and two sections of, uh, of Abraham falling on his face and then the appearance of God and then God exiting. But promise uh, is the bulwark of the commitment of circumcision. God promises us to do us good. He promises to do Abraham good and his promises expand and enrich and envelop us in ways that Abraham couldn't have imagined, just couldn't have imagined. And those are our promises because we are in Christ Jesus. And it's interesting that when it says, and Abram laughed, and he laughed, it's the exact word of Isaac. In the Hebrew, Yitzhak, Yitzhak, right? The same thing. So God gives the very name of the child as a sign of you may laugh, but I'm, I will do more good than you can imagine. You know? And that's a great reminder to us. Are we laughing in skepticism? Or are we laughing in amazement and joy you know, in the great promise of God? And I hope this morning that you will grow in believing the great promises of God and living them out in your life. So one obvious promise here is that he will make Abram fruitful. He says this to Abram, and then he says it about uh, Sarah, of how they will uh, be that they will be a he will be a father of a multitude of nations. He will greatly multiply you. And it's interesting because Genesis one has the command to mankind to multiply in all the earth, and then. After the tragedy of human sin, it's renewed in Genesis 9. But sin has basically thwarted this mission, this commission to be fruitful and multiply so that the world would be filled with people that worship and love God. We see, this is the reestablishment of that, to have a multitude 
that no one can number, to have a race of people that truly worship and love God, that will, in fact, inherit the earth. So this is a grand reversal uh, of the fall, a reestablishment of God's intention that the world will be populated with those who love him. And so, of course, Jesus, Matthew 28, make disciples of all the nations. Why? Because I have all authority in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples of the nations. And all the nations are there. That is, the, the, the different peoples around the Mediterranean basin at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And they all hear the gospel in their language. And so God makes known beginning with Abraham and now in its fulfillment in Christ that he will make a people from all the earth. So in Colossians 1.6, speaking of fruitfulness and bearing fruit, Paul says, this gospel that's come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing. And that was the world at that time of the Mediterranean basin. I got to stay close here. Um, in the Mediterranean basin, but it, it shows what the gospel does. It is the fruit-bearing thing multiplying out throughout the whole world. And so we, by God's grace, are the new race of God's people from every tribe and tongue and nation. All classes, all races, now in one race, as Peter says, you're the chosen race. All one now in Christ Jesus. And we want to bear the fruit of others having the joy of knowing God and admiring God. Don't you want people to know what it is to be in sheer astonishment over how great God is? Because they are blind to that. This is our fruitfulness as it is fulfilled now in Christ Jesus. This multitude that was spoken of, of Abraham, yes, it meant that Israel itself would be formed as a nation, and yet it went beyond that, as Paul would say, that this is the new nation. This is how we're multiplying throughout the whole earth. And so we want people to know the joy of awe, to bring healing and restoration and shalom into people's lives. This is the fruit bearing. This is the multiplication that we want to know for people to know that you can live in the favor of God. You can know that God is the God who gave his son. That's who God is. He's the God who sacrifices for people. Bearing fruit so that they will know this, this God, the true God, lavishes his love on sinners. That's the fruit bearing we want. Bearing fruit more so that also more and more may escape the wrath that is coming upon this world. And that instead of being a person who will one day bear the wrath of God and be swept off this earth into everlasting judgment, they will actually inherit this earth along with Christ. Think of that fruitfulness. Think of bearing that fruit in this world. And as Paul says in Colossians 1, it's the gospel that bears that fruit. It is the unsearchable riches of Christ. It is the gospel, as Paul says, of the glory of Christ. 
basically, brothers and sisters, in relationship with others, in the midst of your servanthood and your hospitality and your friendships, as the time is right to admire Jesus to other people, to speak of his glory, to speak of his beauty. You don't have to convince anybody. You just speak of how of who Christ is and what he has done. Describe his worth to people. That is how we bear fruit. So he promises Abram that he will be the father of a multitude of nations. How could Abram have realized that it would be hundreds and hundreds of millions of people scattered throughout the whole world singing in one voice of praise to God and then it would usher into their being the ones who would inherit the earth forever. How could he have imagined the final goal of this promise? So, he will make us fruitful, but you see it twice in this passage, the second point, that he will make us royal. He says, of Abram, kings will come from you. And then he says to Abram about Sarah, kings will come from her. Underscores the reality the, the nobility, you know, to, to be the mother of a king, to be the mother that royalty uh, comes from you. And so this is to give the great promise of the dignity and glory of your place in history that you will have kings come from you. And certainly kings came from Abram and Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, uh, the kings of Israel. But the kings of Israel centered and their great example and the one that everyone looked to and not only that he was the great king of Israel but he's the model for the future king of Israel and that was David that the Messiah is indeed the the son of David all Israel looked to this one who would be the son of David a king a deliverer the Messiah who would redeem his people from all spiritual and ultimately political bondage and even the creation from its bondage to renew the whole earth and for his people to dwell on that earth. So this, this promise of kingship has its ultimate fulfillment, not only in David who epitomizes uh, Israelite kingship, but in the one to whom he pointed the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is revealed in the New Testament as that son of David. And Paul points out his exalted kingship, which we've been studying in Sunday school, where all things are subjected under his feet, all powers of the earth, and he rules at the right hand of God. How could Abraham have imagined what this promise would mean. Ultimate kingship that would be a kingship to supply and sustain and protect his people to the final consummation. How could he know that one of their very descendants would be one born also of the Holy Spirit to a virgin, that he would die as a sacrifice for sin to end all sacrifice for sin? And that he would reign until all his enemies are taken off the earth. That's the ultimate promise here of kingship. 
And now from our perspective, you see, we're caught up in this kingship. This promise of kingship doesn't exclude us. It includes us. The New Testament makes clear that Christ's ascension to the right hand of God is really the restoration of humanity's kingship. It's the restoration of what we lost in the fall. Because we cannot be kings and queens until we're set free from sin. We can't be. We're in bondage. What rule can we offer? What service can we offer if we're not set free from the guilt and the punishment of sin and set free from the enslavement of sin? And so Peter, as he's describing God's people, he not only says you're a royal, a a chosen race, but you're a royal priesthood. The idea of priesthood, access, acceptance with God, intimacy with God. But you're royal. And so Paul can say in Romans 8, you're co-heirs with Christ. That's a royal statement because he is the king. He is the son of the father who receives this world because of his glorious accomplishment. And we are caught up with him We're told that we will judge angels. That's our royalty. Jesus says to the one who is faithful in Revelation 2, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. That's not said about Jesus. That's said about you. I don't know how it's going to happen, but you're caught up in this Royalty, And so it, it says in Revelation 5.10, he shall reign forever and ever. But at the very end of the Bible, as maybe a corollary to this promise of kingship, it says in the last chapter, they shall reign forever and ever. That's the ultimate final blessing. His restored royal kingship for God's people. And even now, kingship manifests itself. And here are just a few ways that your royalty can manifest itself in this world. One is your joy and your praise. You've been liberated to enjoy God. You've been liberated from the darkness of not enjoying God as you eat that watermelon. Not enjoying God as you take a warm shower and think of his goodness. Not enjoying God. I thought of Philip kissing those babies' heads. I wish it had been me kissing those babies' heads. I bet you did too. But praise God that you can kiss a little baby's head. We've been liberated to enjoy God in every aspect of life. We've been liberated to praise him. That's royalty. That's our restored kingship. And Instead of being slaves to ourselves and slaves to... Uh, being bit in and and slaves of sin and corruption to be liberated to enjoy God. Another aspect of our kingship is likeness to God, being restored to the image of God. And, of course, to be restored to the image of God is to be in the image of Christ, the one who loved, the one who sacrificed himself, the one who showed humble servanthood. You see, true kingship manifests sacrifice. That's royalty. That's nobility and dignity. That you have the capacity to be like God 
and give yourself away to others in love. And of course, connected with that, we just mentioned that the freedom of enslavement to self and sin and Satan, how can we be restored to his image unless we're set free? And then and then just one other to mention is power to affect this world. It is our royal prerogative. And the work can be from visiting a neighbor who is sick to volunteering for 40 days for life or pregnancy lifeline or Super Wednesdays or the mission to Juarez or doing your work with excellence. Every aspect of life every day is the opportunity to manifest your new royalty in Christ as you seek to bring influence in this world. And that's what royalty does. The hand that was crucified is the one who rules the world, right? Admission to kingship is reserved for servants. That's what kings, true kings are. It says in Philippians 2, because he subjected himself to death, even the death of the Christ, therefore God highly exalted him. Well, very closely tied to this kingship is this third point that you find that we're, he makes us fruitful, he makes us royal. And is a, I would just say an extension of that, therefore, that we are a benefit to this world. He had said earlier in chapter 12 to Abram that all nations of the earth will be blessed in you. And in this passage, Ishmael, who's not really a part of the people of God, nonetheless is richly blessed because of his association with the people of God, because he's a son of Abraham. And so with us, it's not only the specific fruit of bringing people to Christ, but we manifest God's presence and we anticipate the coming kingdom by just how we care and serve for those around us. You read this in Jeremiah, in the exile of all things where you think that you just lay low and not cause any trouble anywhere, uh, not make yourself known. But it says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so we exert our our royal prerogatives, our, our kingship, by seeking to bring the influence of Jesus in our communities and in our neighborhoods. And you've, at, you've heard this question asked before, if this church suddenly disappeared, what would it, would the community even notice it? You know, And then each of us, and this is closer to home for each one of us, if you suddenly left your neighborhood, would anybody even notice it? Would they be thinking, oh, what are we going to do now that all the good that was done or all the things that many times were in their home or many times they were in our, will people miss us because we were doing good to people. We were serving people, loving them. Are we bringing our neighborhoods together to form community? Are we addressing the needs of our community? How can our building, the deacons are asking this as well, how can our building be used for the good of our community? What ideas do you have? Share them with us. In the early church, pagan uh, emperors complained to say, it's the Christians that find our babies we've left on the trash heap. They're the ones that do that. We don't. See? 
there was the influence. And that's why I love this verse in the hymn that we, uh, the music team sang. He's the hope of the hungry. He's the Lord of the feast. Our father's house always opens wide to welcome refugees. The fatherless find a father. The widow rests in his strength. The heart of God is forever home to all the poor and weak. How does that show itself in this world? You know the answer, right? We manifest the Father's love in this world. We prove this out because we belong to the Father and we're like the Father. We have the character of the Father. And so they see the Father as Jesus himself said, you're the light of the world. Let men see your good works and your light so that they may glorify your Father in heaven. This this can seem really absolutely untrue to people if they know believers or professing believers that don't manifest this. But that's the promise. The promise. It's not just buck up and go. It's the promise that God will make us into these kinds of people. And you see, it's in the wake of these promises that God then calls us to participate in his goodness. In this case, it was circumcision. This is a kind of uneasy passage in that regard because this is such an intimate sign. It seems to leave out women, but there are Jewish writings that speak of the union of marriage that The two are are one, and even you think of every person is the result of such a union. So all the people of God are connected to this act. All the people of God were caught up in this. And obviously, the reason this particular, this, this sign is effective to point to this future of having this multitude of people. And so it was a a promise uh, to that end. And in connection with it, it's the sign that you, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's interesting in Leviticus several times, God says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt so that I could be your God and you could be my people. And I just, I'm thrilled at God's excitement. It it's kind of stuns me. I got you out of Egypt so that I could be your God. That means so that everything I am and everything I have could be yours. That I is the the ruler of of the whole world and and infinite goodness and love so that (laughs) you could have me. This unlimited source of blessing, of transformation, of joy. I will be your God. You will be my people. He looks at us and says, that's mine. My people. They belong to me. I take them as my own. Sinners though we be. And and the sign is clearly a, a bloody sign. And it points to the future of what Christ would do for God's people. In fact, I follow the interpretation of 
in Colossians 2, when it talks about our circumcision of heart that God has accomplished in us, it says it's through the circumcision of Christ. And many commentators would say he's referring here to the death of Christ, but he's calling it the circumcision of Christ. Christ cut off from the living. Christ cut off in the judgment of God, bearing away the wrath of God, that we might be renewed in heart. And in theology of the Old Testament and the New, it became a sign for the renewal of the heart. In fact, it's graphic. It has that same language to circumcise the foreskin of your heart. It can't get much more graphic than that. To associate the two things. And here's the point of that circumcision. As God says in Deuteronomy 36, I'll circumcise your heart so that you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You see, we're born with hearts that are hardened. We're born with hearts that will not respond to God. We're born with hearts that are against God. God does a work, a gracious work in us, signified by this act of circumcision in changing our hearts. So it's so interesting in Ezekiel 36, we've heard us quote this a lot where he says, I will take, uh, I will put my spirit in you. I will take away the stony heart and give you a heart of flesh. That's kind of a circumcision language. And then in the next verse, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. See this holistic way? It's like, I will take you for me and I will renew you. I will make you into new beings from the inside out. It won't be superficial. And this sign was pointing to this inner reality. Paul can say at the end of Romans 2, he says, he's not a Jew who's been circumcised outwardly. That's not a Jew. He's a Jew who's circumcised inwardly. It's of the heart by the Holy Spirit. That's true. Religion, that's true experience of God's grace. And so Paul can say of us Christians, we are the circumcision, Philippians 3.3. We worship by the spirit. We depend upon Christ alone. We glory in Christ and we put no confidence in ourselves. That's what the new circumcision is, right? Glorying in Christ When the heart is renewed by the Holy Spirit, when the heart of stone is taken out and we're given a warm, alive heart by God, then we begin to glory in Christ. We honor him. We give ourselves up to him. We entrust ourselves. We recognize how good he is and we want to give ourselves up to him. And so this command to be blameless, it makes us uncomfortable. It's the same word to Noah. It's only two times this word's used. Noah was blameless and he caused Abram to be blameless. Job was said to be blameless. And in the New Testament, it's interesting. It says in Ephesians 1, he chose us in order that we might be blameless. Or Jesus died in Ephesians 5 In order, he died for the church, he suffered in order that the church might be blameless. You see, all of salvation is wrapped up in Christ and offered to you. The transformation, the forgiveness, 
his presence with us from now to the end of our lives and throughout the, all of history so that we manifest more and more this amazing grace of bearing fruit before God. And I want to say to those of you who, and this, this, is, this will be your most unusual uh, gospel invitation ever. <laughs> Come be circumcised of heart. <laughs> right? Th- this sign tells you, it tells me, Darwin, you've got real issues. You've got deep issues. You've got intractable issues, lethal issues. Your, your problems will not go away on their own. It's terminal. But God comes to this terminal person and he says, I will forgive you. I will renew you in Christ. I will make you fruitful. I will make you royalty. I will use you to bring light into this world. I will do you good. And how do we know it? Because Christ himself has been given for us. He has been crucified. He has been horribly circumcised and cut off in order that we might have renewal. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we rest in you. You alone can rescue us. You alone, Lord, can do us good and do us deep good, do us real good, and continue to do us good. For we struggle with the continuing issues and problems with sin, and yet we, have, we can have every confidence that you are a God who does this deep work and you continue to do this deep work the whole of our lives. We praise you. We will give ourselves up to your lordship, you who has been sacrificed for us. Jesus' name, amen.